There was once a boy who was a shepherd, and his parents let him live in a cave with his sheep. They were my friends, they were my entertaining, they were everything, like without the animals I had in life. In Ethiopia, shepherds have to fight to defend their turf. So Wubetu, that's his name, he was tough, and he was fast. At 10 years old, he convinced his parents to let him go to a school five miles away. I would run everyone barefoot because if you are late to school, your teacher would be hitting you from the back with a stick. One day, he was playing soccer during a school recess, and this white guy walked by. That wasn't so weird. There's a huge national park nearby where Rubetu also worked as a bellhop, so he was used to Westerners, and he spoke English pretty well. He invited the guy to join their soccer game, and when the guy left, he gave Rubetu 30 bucks and his business card. Rubetu bought an English grammar book, shoes, a coat, but he didn't know what to do with the card. The business card for me was just a piece of paper with random numbers and letters. Like later on, I told my friend the story, I showed him like the business card, and he said, there is email, and I asked him, what is email? This is email, what is that? This is email, he kept repeating, I have no idea what he was talking about. He tried to explain what a computer is and then how internet works. So he said like, you can type it and on a computer, you will type it here and it will pump out of the US. I have no idea what he was talking about. I was lost. That was seven years ago. Seven years ago, I, I didn't know like if phones exist. I didn't know computers exist. I didn't know there was a power. Ubetu was skeptical, but he walked 12 miles to the nearest internet cafe and emailed the guy, who turned out to be Blake Mykoski, founder of Tom's Shoes. They started corresponding. And one day, like he said, if your parents give you the blessing, I would be more than happy to support you. Blake offered to send Wubetu to school in the Ethiopian capital, Addis Ababa. And Wubetu was really conflicted, because everyone in the countryside thinks people in Addis Ababa are savage cannibals. His mother said he shouldn't go, but he got on a bus with his dad and got off in the big city. Unfortunately, Blake's friend who arrived to meet them was a big guy with long hair. And Wubetu freaked out because that was exactly how he imagined cannibals look. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and then the crazy thing is like the exact image of like the cannibal. I get scared. I hold my dad's leg so tight and my dad like tried to hide me behind it because we both were afraid that we we're going to be eaten. The guy didn't eat them, so Wubetu stayed. And that was the decision that changed his life. Once he made that first step to push through fear of the unknown, he could do it again and again. Blake sent him to high school in Iowa and college at Wake Forest University in North Carolina, and that's where I met him three weeks ago. I was in North Carolina to guest lecture at Wake Forest, and while I was there, I wanted to talk to people about the election. We had arrived at the final weeks, and that Access Hollywood video with Republican presidential candidate Donald Trump talking about doing graphic, violent things to women had just been released. Wubetu's story, when he told it to me, reminded me of one of the themes that's emerged in this podcast— how we all live in bubbles, bubbles where we only see our friends and don't have to face people who are very different from us. Our bubbles aren't separated by geography, like Wubetu's were. Maybe that's part of being a multicultural country. Our bubbles overlap. But this election seems to have shown us how far apart we remain. That's the so-called Trump effect for some people. You'll hear about that in this episode from Muslim students in Chapel Hill and a conservative white kid in Winston-Salem. But former MSNBC host Melissa Harris-Perry 
surprised me. The Trump fact, I, just don't, I, don't, I don't buy it. I don't think it's true. If everyone's telling you the same story, uh-uh. Just guarantee that ain't the story. 100%. Nope. I'm Rupa Shanoi, and this is Otherhood. Donald Trump and Hillary Clinton were frequent visitors to North Carolina this campaign season. And as I record this, with about one week to go to Election Day, North Carolina is still generally regarded as a swing state. The Democratic strongholds are the cities, Raleigh, Charlotte, Chapel Hill, places with universities and high-tech industries that have attracted Northerners and many upper-income Middle Eastern and Southeast Asian Americans. But North Carolina is still the state that provided the most men to fight for the South in the Civil War. The state that refused to serve African Americans at lunch counters and harassed civil rights workers who tried. The state that went Republican in the last presidential election. And the state where, in 2015, a young man, his wife, and their friend were shot point-blank by a neighbor near UNC Chapel Hill. Ayub Badrni was their friend. Immediately afterwards, It was like that stinging pain, like, every single day, every, like, single moment. They were Muslim, and the shooter was white. Initially, police said it was a parking dispute. Eventually, they acknowledged it was a hate crime. My family at the time was in Qatar, overseas, living there. And so I remember that morning waking up to, it was probably like 30 or 40 missed calls from my mom, just, like, worried. And then my sister was supposed to join us the next two years, and they got scared for her, too. What do you say to them to make them feel better? I mean, what, what can you say is the thing. That, that was something I struggled with, and I know some of my friends struggled as well, whose like, family do not, does not live in the area. But how do you reassure them that this was a one-off like, incident and that this is not like, indicative of the culture of you know, Chapel Hill in the area? That was a very difficult discussion. But Ayub says the universal and overwhelming public support made Muslim students feel safe. Hamid Ali, a computer science major from Oklahoma, remembers the first vigil held after the deaths. And I didn't really expect that many people to come, but I was behind the stage and I looked out at the crowd and it just like kept going. I couldn't see the end of it. From that night, they called the three students who died our three winners in recognition of their achievements and community service. In their memory, Muslim students and their communities organized charity events and service projects. The day I met with a bunch of them in the student union, they were all dressed up for a fundraiser in honor of the three winners. They say they still feel surrounded by solid support. But I asked Hamid. You didn't mention anything about whether you felt safe or not. So was that not a thing? It was actually a pretty vivid memory now that you mentioned that. I was at Ayub's apartment. It was a few days after, I think. And I was leaving his apartment. And I was, and I was like, dude, make sure you lock the door. Like, actually lock it. Because I think I had seen somebody outside that looked shady. Maybe it was just my imagination or whatever, but... What does a shady person look like? And then do you find yourself racially profiling? Yeah, yeah. So that, that's the other thing that came to my head immediately after that. So the guy was, I think he was white, and he was wearing, like, a dark clothes or whatever. But he was just, he was just like, like he was lingering. But in any other circumstance, like, I don't, I wouldn't give it another thought. And yeah, and it is really ironic because I think collectively we're always in the Muslim community. We were always making jokes about being profiled at airports and and stuff like that. And yeah, it is ironic that I kind of did the same thing there. 
I haven't felt unsafe at all on this campus, but I was at the state fair yesterday and I got there around sunset, which is when Muslims pray the third prayer of the day, or the, sorry, the fourth prayer of the day at sunset. And I'm always nervous when I'm praying out of a comfortable space. And the state fair attracts like a lot of different, an array of people from North Carolina. I had seen people carrying Trump and Pence boards that stick in their yard, and I was very nervous. But that's like what I think me and many of us have come to know as like the status quo. Trump definitely normalized this open Islamophobia and like the xenophobia and this anti-immigrant stance. This is how you began. They didn't like invent this stuff. This stuff was there, you know, on the undercurrent. And you know, seeing like friends on Facebook posting, oh, we have to build that wall or, you know, kick them all out. You come like, bro, like we went to high school together. <laughs> That's crazy to watch. Whether they had it repressed before, or, like then this him bringing it out was very uh, crazy. Are there Trump supporters on campus? <laughs> I mean, I'm sure there I'm, are. I'm sure there are. Some people from the campaign were here actually last semester. I remember that they just had the Make America Great Again sign. There were two of them. Uh, other than that, I'm sure there are. I've never personally met any other than those two. I think they're very much uh, ignored by the vast majority of the Chapel Hill community. If there are any, like, you know, Trump supporters in the area or any people, you know, that have the very xenophobic, Islamophobic sentiment or you know, the anti-immigration sentiment and, you know, hateful towards other communities, I think that's a very small minority of the uh, Chapel community. As we saw, that could also be a deadly minority, but I think a minority nonetheless. In the years since the three winners' deaths, as Donald Trump campaigned for president in part by calling for increased restrictions on Muslim immigration, many Muslim men on the Chapel Hill campus chose to claim their identity openly. It was a change for Hamza Balush. As a kid, he had avoided wearing traditional Pakistani clothes. When I got out of the car at Harris Theater, I thought people would give me weird looks. Like, I didn't want to be that person. I realized that people aren't going to change their views about Muslims unless I do something. So for me, my entire college experience at least has been show who I am as a Muslim so then people can see how Muslims actually are. Because I know some Muslims that are living in the country, regardless of what they say, nobody's going to listen to them. They can't share their views. And for us to help them out in different areas, we have to be vocal and we have to reach out to other people so that that helps them more than it helps us because we have it pretty easy here. Hamza is passionate about solidarity, not just with fellow Muslims, but also African Americans, especially after the September police shooting and protests in Charlotte. I went to the Black Lives Movement that we had here, and we had a lot of Muslim turnout. And I don't think it's just about like the African American community, it's just minorities in general in America are consistently discriminated, and I think their story of police shootings is our story of people hating against Muslims. It's a Hispanic story of Trump kicking them out. It's one story, it's the same backbone, and I think we should be in a position to give them support. There's a lot of people out there who've never seen an ocean in their life. So they probably haven't seen many African Americans, they probably haven't seen many Muslims, let alone been friends with one or talked with one or had a conversation about, you know, their beliefs or their experiences. 
Ryan Wolf is a white Republican from New Jersey who's a student at Wake Forest in Winston-Salem. He says Trump supporters aren't necessarily racist. They're just living within their own bubbles. For them, it's a very different world than it is for people with graduate degrees and master's degrees and higher qualifications to get jobs, people who live on the East Coast and the West Coast. It's a different world. It's much harder, I think, for people to be offended at statements. Like the temporary ban on Muslims is a great example. For people who know Muslims, obviously you're like, well, I'm friends with someone who's Muslim. This doesn't make any sense. Or, you know, their parents immigrated to America and they're great people. Like, I don't get it. But for, for a lot of people, if you've never met someone who's Muslim, you're not going to react to that in a negative way. I have family you know, who's worked in coal mines and factories in the Midwest. And these people feel like they've not been represented for such a long time. And so when people feel like their voice hasn't been heard, and all of a sudden you have someone who speaks your language, right, who you watched on TV before, this, this guy who's a pop culture figure who's successful, just like you want to be, just like you want your kids to be and your grandkids to be, that appeals to people. It doesn't appeal to Ryan, though. He's been a conservative since he went out for cross-country running in high school. He sucked at it. So he dropped out and trained for a year with a friend. When I came back, I was so much better and so much faster. I wasn't at the back of the pack anymore. That message that that hard work can change like your position and where you are meant a lot to me. I am a firm believer in radical individualism that if you believe in yourself and you want to do something, that the barriers that you have aren't really all that important. So that's why I'm a conservative. And Trump, he says, is not. Trump makes a lot of things, race and religion and gender. And I don't think that's conservative. And I don't think conservatives at the moment are being represented great right now by the GOP. In other words, the Trump effect has been to make conservatives others in their own party. I think for me, the the hardest thing has been because I'm in that Republican group, people say, okay, you're going to defend Trump for us, right? No, I don't defend Donald Trump. However, you still get called a bigot and a racist. When people say that to you or to other people like you, it must be really hard not to get embittered. Right. I do my best personally to not take anything personally. So I I wrote an article uh, talking about a Harvard study that said uh, race was not a factor in police shootings. And I talked about why I liked the study, why I thought it was more accurate than others. I also talked about its limitations. I got called a white supremacist for literally no reason, Just, just for talking about a study. When this election is over, Ryan says people his age will return the Republican Party to a conservative message that doesn't include race. I think about the future of the party a lot because what we see today is with younger voters, more and more are unaffiliated. More and more don't feel like any party represents them. In the future, the Republican Party is going to need a voice that stands up for conservative ideas that doesn't hold positions, doesn't make statements or say things that people on the left can just immediately throw you out as racist or Islamophobic or homophobic or or whatever. I think the future of the Republican Party is an inclusive one. When millennials are starting to take charge, that is when the Republican Party can win. Because that's when that message, that conservative message shines through 
and spreading that conservative message of radical individualism. Because I think immigrants understand that more than anyone else does. When they leave their countries for more opportunities in the United States, that is a radically individual move. If the GOP could find a way to do immigration reform right, then they could for sure win that group of voters. Ryan made me think back to the Muslim students in Chapel Hill and wonder if Trump and his rhetoric have helped unite minorities in opposition, what will happen after the election? How long will they stay unified? Especially if Ryan's right and Republicans try to stop making things about race. Anyway, moving on. Ryan was part of a small group of Wake Forest students who actually went to the Democratic and Republican conventions and worked for campaigns as part of a program called Wake the Vote. I was able to meet Chris Christie, John Kasich, Carly Fiorina, Colbert, Scott Walker, Wolf Blitzer, Jake Tapper. Jeb Bush was kind of sad. We worked on his last day of his campaign in South Carolina. I was with the Rubio campaign in New Hampshire, which was also sad. It's very cool. <laughs> The Wake the Vote program is based out of Wake Forest's Center on Social Justice, directed by Melissa Harris-Perry, Elle Magazine editor-at-large. I had lunch with her and her students on the day they opened a new public art exhibit about the campaign trail. We were in the stately, old, off-campus house that's home to the school's Center on Social Justice. We don't think of this as a safe space. We think of this as a thinking space. We're having an impromptu discussion around a long wooden table with parts of the exhibit around us. There are political buttons, posters, toy Donald Trumps and Hillary Clintons, and art about major issues like immigration. We don't want you to come in here and be hurt by any of it, but we want you to come in here and think about it, talk about it. I mean, there's chairs and there's you can sit down and be with it for a minute. There's an eight-foot-tall artist self-portrait drawn on the pages of his court records. Across from that, photos of black men shot by police are pasted to a window looking out. We purposely put this in the window. Like, like this isn't on the wall. This is in the window because we are, we are provoking. There's a backstory here. Wake Forest has a policy against students displaying anything in dorm windows. It dates back to the 1990s when students put up Confederate flags. Incidentally, that was about the time Melissa Harris-Perry was earning her bachelor's at Wake Forest. This summer, someone ignored the rule and put a Trump sign in a dorm window. Students in the room above put a Black Lives Matter sign in their window and an arrow pointing down. They were contesting openly who had the right to speak. And I loved it, and the school had a little moment, and then there was a conversation. And the policy was put under review and is currently not being enforced. Feelings, though, still run high. In the Wake the Vote exhibit, under the photos of black men killed, is a display of police officers recognized for their community service. Some people are extremely irritated that that exhibit exists in the same space with the other piece. But if people are uncomfortable, she says that's an accurate reflection of what the Wake the Vote students experienced on the campaign trail. We dress exactly the same everywhere we go, but we were standing there in Cleveland and a police officer walked up to the one African-American male in our group and basically accused him of stealing a car while we were all dressed alike. Now, we can talk about profiling, 
But when you stand there while your friend experiences that, that was hard on every member of that group. You know, we walked through a protest and there were men who said to two of the young Asian women in our group to go back to China. And again, everyone had to witness and experience that. I think for our conservative students, when we got to Philadelphia, like the presumption of like the evil of all Republicans and they're sitting there, you know, they're, again, everyone's always in the same t-shirt, so they're masked, basically. Nobody knows that they're Republicans. And the rhetoric of progressives about how deplorable Republicans are in this particular election cycle. And they're sitting there like, uh, this is a lot to have to listen to. And it is a lot because no one talks with any kind of moderation about it. It's just, they're all awful. They're all racist. They're all deliberate. Anyone who would support Trump should be just thrown out of the country basically. And they're sitting there like, hello. <laughs> My experience of this election, like in, a, in a, just the most basic metaphor I have of it, is when you have a three-year-old who goes like to the hairdresser or to the school and repeats everything that you say at home, and you're like, shh, because Mr. Trump just seems to be saying out loud everything that Americans, not Republicans, Americans say at home. So as far as I can tell, what we're really actually mad about is that Mr. Trump says it in ways that feel vulgar and harsh. We are more freaked out about his style than his substance. So we're saying, oh my God, there is going to be deportation of immigrants. I'm not sure if you have noticed what Jay Johnson is doing right now. Jay Johnson, he's the Secretary of Homeland Security. He is going to people's houses, knocking on their doors and dragging their mothers out of the house. Right now, under Barack Obama. That is happening right now. We right now have children in immigration prisons in this country, in inhumane conditions for months and years on it. That is happening right now. The idea that whether or not we elect Mr. Trump or Mrs. Clinton is at all really a question of whether or not we're going to treat people who are undocumented in this country in inhumane ways is like us just not paying attention to the world. So like we're running around putting off onto Mr. Trump some question of immigration reform, excuse me, that is a level of like electoral naivete that I don't appreciate. We're saying that being racist is a disqualification for the American presidency? Since when? What year did being racist become a disqualification for the American presidency? Because for most of American history, it was actually a prerequisite. At this point, my mother, who's with me because she lives in North Carolina, she decides to tell Melissa Harris Perry a story about the impact she thinks Trump has had on her life. I work in my yard a lot, a lot, a lot, a lot. So one day I was potting something in my garage, and I used to see this red pickup truck that has two big flags. And I never thought anything about it. You know, one's a big American flag, one's a big Confederate flag. Never thought anything about it. One day I'm, I'm doing my own thing there and I hear this honk. I looked up and the guy flicked his middle finger at me. And I'm like, 
Really? What happened to you? Winston-Salem? No, this oh. was in Apex, North Carolina. Oh, but still, in North Carolina? Melissa was surprised because she doesn't think that Trump has enabled others to be more openly racist. I mean, I don't feel that way. I don't feel the escalation story. I don't like the current discourse around like Trump is so scary or the Trump has unleashed a thing or that like, like I, I just. Or the Trump effect. Or the Trump effect. I just don't, I don't. No, why? That's me if you don't recognize the voice. Because I don't buy it. I don't think it's true. I think that there are way too many interests that are served by that narrative. And if everyone has the same analysis, it's not an analysis. It's a whisper campaign. And so be real careful. If everyone's telling you the same story, uh-uh. Just guaranteed that ain't the story. 100%. Nope. Look behind it. And so I sat there in newsrooms while they made Trump. So they ain't that afraid of Trump because they made him. I watched him do it. I watched him insist on doing it. That's why I just don't buy the like, we are coming to Armageddon. <laughs> no, we're just going to have an election. And then the next day will be November 9th. You don't think that he, his rhetoric gives other people, makes them feel like they can say stuff? You might be able to tell. I was pretty surprised at what Perry was saying. I think racists don't really need somebody to help them. It's like it's like when they're like, "Oh my God, hip hop lets white people say no, 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 no." They already had known how to say that for a long time before the hip hop. We don't want to cope with our history, and so we can take all the things that we don't like about who we are, all the things that are difficult or challenging, and we can. Pick them all up, all of our deplorability, the little basket of deplorability that we weaved with our own little historical hands that we continue to be weaving, and we can give it all to Mr. Trump. And we can say, you did it. And what I love about him is every time we do it, he's like, uh-uh, you. You, 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 you. So we should just cope with ourselves. Yeah, but we haven't for like ever. So, so we should. But will we? What will make us do that? Well, we, we are, because Mr. Trump is neither the worst nor the best thing that can happen to America. Just like Obama was not the best or worst thing that could happen to America, Perry says. He's just a thing that will happen to America, and then the next thing will happen. There are people, though, for whom the Trump effect feels tangible and immediate. For undocumented immigrants, November 8th seems like a referendum on their future. North Carolina has one of the biggest populations of undocumented immigrants, and a college student I've agreed to call, Arissa, learned she was one of them two years ago. She was on the verge of crying the whole time we talked. I had grown up watching all these shows where people were like in metropolitan areas, like drinking a glass of wine in their like loft with like a great view of the city and everything like that, right? And I grew up kind of wanting that for myself. And then that came crashing down. My father sat me down and I remember this so distinctly. He sat me down and he said, you can't afford to do certain things that other kids can. And I didn't know how to cope with it and I'm still learning. Arissa and her sister were born in an East Asian country. She doesn't want me to say which. Her sister, who's six years older, knew about their status growing up, and she lived in fear of being caught. 
So the family tried to spare Orissa that experience. And a lot of people would say to me, and I, I can hear a lot of people saying, like in the media, "No, you, your parents brought you into this. How can you be okay with that?" And it's like, I trust my parents. I love my parents, and they did what they thought was best for me and my sister. Now it's just a matter of like slowly finding out who I am and like how I'm affected by certain policies. There's a lot to understand about navigating the immigration system, but with her sister's help, Orissa figured it out and got a scholarship to college. And then she felt this weird guilt as she watched Trump campaign for president by talking about undocumented Mexican immigrants. The Asian undocumented community is the largest growing, and it's projected to like surpass the Latino community. However, the rhetoric is so like fixated on the Latino community, so there's a lot of like badgering and there's a lot of crap they're dealing with. So I just want to be an ally, but then also speak for myself. And I don't know how to do that neatly just quite yet. She's tried to stop thinking about the election and her own status. I had been pretty successfully ignoring the problem, pretty successfully, until a couple weeks back when I received a call from my family and they said that my DACA had expired. DACA is the Deferred Action for Childhood Arrivals policy. It allows some young undocumented immigrants to stay in the U.S. and defer action on their case for two years, and then the status has to be renewed. Arissa had put her renewal application in with plenty of time, but she hasn't heard back. We didn't do anything wrong. We didn't commit any crimes. We didn't, like, have any, like, anything that would, like, prevent us from getting it again. Where is it? And they're like, oh, no, you know, it's like in, in paperwork. It's coming. It's coming to you soon. And they've said that multiple times. And we've called them multiple times. And as of right now, I do not have DACA and I don't have protection. My sister, since her DACA expired and she's no longer protected by a new one, lost her job. And now Election Day just looms in Arissa's life. Trump has become a symbol for fear and the possibility of deportation. It is a very, very possible reality that I might be going through and that a lot of other people might be going through, 11 million people might be going through. If that's the anxiety that I'm going to have to live with for however long, if Donald Trump wins the presidency, I just don't know. I just don't know how people are going to do it. I don't know how I'm going to do it. I mean, I have the love and support of others. And as much as I appreciate it, it's just like there's no way that they can truly empathize with me. And I sometimes feel very alone. You know, I have my sister, I have other undocumented friends, but at the same time, we're all just very alone. We don't know what we're gonna do. We don't know how we're gonna live, but you know, we'll figure it out, I guess. Here's what I wonder after reporting this episode, and after a lot of episodes we've been doing in Otherhood lately. Is it possible that the Trump effect has been to unify? Unify an opposition, I mean. This is my hypothesis, and I fully acknowledge I might be wrong, and I invite you to tell me how I'm wrong. But maybe the Trump effect was unsurprising for African Americans, because unfortunately, they're used to it. They've lived with racism for generations. But first-generation Americans haven't. In their immigrant families, they generally tried not to focus on racism because they're grateful to be in the U.S. and they want to believe the best of the place. Trump, though, put language many construe as racist squarely in their faces. Immigrants themselves didn't necessarily respond by uniting with other minorities. We saw that with some recent Indian American support for Trump. But I think many immigrants' kids, or people who came to the U.S. as kids, have responded by finding common cause with other minorities. 
And I wonder if that's helped push a major U.S. political party to claim multiculturalism and quote-unquote minority issues more so than ever before. For example, it astounded me to see the mothers of black men shot by police on stage at the Democratic National Convention, because those are the women we reporters who covered police shootings went to in the wake of deaths. That's who fought through their grief to talk to us. And still, until there was cell phone video evidence and Trump, they went unheard. If Hillary Clinton wins, as is predicted, will minorities and Democrats stay united and committed to claiming causes like police shootings when they no longer have Donald Trump as the bad guy that unites them? And will we continue to recognize and challenge the bubbles we live in that divide us? I guess we'll find out together. Post your thoughts on the Otherhood Facebook page and tweet me at Rupa Shanoi. Thank you very much for listening. This has been Otherhood from PRI. See you after the election.